Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you that we can gather together in freedom and learn more about your glorious word. We're also grateful that you have not left us with subjective feelings to know who you are, but the objective word of God. We ask that you would open it up to us now this morning and also in the sermon. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us uh, your, your truth, your words, that you would regenerate the lost and that you would equip the saints for battle. Um, Lord, we do pray for protection upon our country. We pray protection upon Jerusalem. Pray for, we uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We also pray for our troops and our airmen and our sailors around the world that uh, enable us to have this freedom to gather together. We ask that you deliver the enemy into their hands, and we ask for protection upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're in verses 8 through 11. Now, I know I showed you this outline last time, but I, I just want to reiterate it because we're kind of in the same section. So remember, verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3 talks about our association with Christ and our resulting affections. And remember, the affections are for the things of Christ. And it's because we become regenerate believers. Because of that, we have affections for Him, His Word, and godly living. And then in verses 5 through 11, and that's where we're going to finish today, this talks about our dissociation with the world and our resulting hatred. And I couldn't fit it all on the screen where I wanted to, but realize the hatred is for the things of the world. In other words, sinful things, ungodly desires. So it's not hatred in general for people in general or anything like that. I want to clarify that. And then the next time we're together, we'll be getting into the section where we see again our association with Christ results in a new character. Okay? So that's why I entitled, if you notice, our disassociation with the world includes us mortifying the flesh, putting off the old self, and learning to love the things of God. And that's what we see in this section. So we're going to be learning to put our old self to death. And that's where we pick it up here in Colossians 3.8 where Paul writes this. He says, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Now the thing we have to, I think, first of all, clarify. Notice the term them. I have it highlighted in red. That refers to acts of immorality in general. And there was two lists. You probably don't recall the list from last time, but maybe you do. Verse 5, verse 5, and then in verse 8 that we see here. So there's two lists. Let me just put them all out here. So notice again, remember in verse 5, the first three on the list, it's immorality, impurity, passion. Those had to do with sexual sins. And they're especially egregious because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that it's actually sin against the man. And now in verse 8, notice all of these sins have to do with uh, being kind of in the social or corporate setting. In other words, these are those sins that you would unleash upon your fellow man or woman. Are you with me? Whereas the uh, first five, certainly they affect people, but they're more inward. Okay? So that's what we're going to be looking at. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. But this is the whole list. That's what's being referred to with the them that's highlighted. So let me get into the other part of this verse here. And notice the phrase, put them all aside. Again, we're still in Colossians 3.8. And that phrase there comes from apatithemi. This is a me verb. It ends with a me. And I always hated these when I was in school. You remember these, Bob? The paradigms are exceedingly difficult. They were for me for some reason. But anyway, it's a neat verb because it means to put off. Just like you would put off your clothing. And of course, it also means to put off the old nature. But the primary meaning is just to shed something. Okay? So in Acts 7.58, do you remember the stoning of Stephen? 
people were actually putting off their garments, and the reason why they were doing that is that they could throw stones easier, more than likely, and they were putting it at the feet of Saul, of course, indicating that Saul was condoning Stephen's death. So anyway, that's how it's typically used, but here it's used with putting off the old nature. We're shedding it like clothing, and we see examples of this. It's used like in Romans 13, 12. Um, who had Ephesians 4.22? Yeah, James, you had that one. And you'll see the same idea here present. Ephesians 4.22, you were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who is being corrupted in accordance with deceitful desires. There's lay aside again, the old man, yeah. So it's the same idea. So we are actually, in fact, going to put them all aside That is the old man, including these following sins. Now, what I want to do is talk about this anger and wrath. And what you're going to see is these terms, orge and thumas, they're often put together in Paul's epistles, and they're often put together for emphasis or effect. It's like they each have kind of a slight nuance, but together there's an intensification that occurs. And so, for instance, in Romans 2, 5 through 8, you're going to see them both used, and it's referencing God's extreme wrath or anger. Now, let me just stop there. Orge and thumas, when this is wrath and anger, when it's used of God, we know that it's always a holy and righteous anger that doesn't come, as it were, like from humans. From humans, we fly off the handle, and it's often ungodly. It's often at the spur of the moment. It's often not well thought out. This is different, though, when it's appealed to, when it's referencing God. God's wrath and anger is always perfect. It's well thought out. He is holy and just. Are you with me? So there's two different categories. But what I want you to see is how it's used with reference to God in Romans 2, 5 through 8. Who had that passage? Hopefully I gave that one out. Oh, yeah, Pat has that one. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Yeah. But because of your stubbornness and the unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. Yeah, and start, stop right there. I'm sorry, Pat. Stop right there. That storing up wrath is interesting right there. Bob, you had told me on the phone, and I never knew this before until you told me this, when you were doing your research in Romans, that term for storing up wrath actually has to do with not only storing it up linearly, but also accruing wrath, or accruing it like on interest exponentially. Yes. So think about that. Lost sinners aren't just storing away wrath in a linear fashion and just heaping up a little bit every day. It's actually growing exponentially. That's the term. In fact, I wrote the term down. The, the Greek verb for that, for storing up, is theisretso. And theisretso literally means to grow up wrath or store it with interest. That's frightening, I think, because that's what we've all been doing until we came to Christ. So anyway, I'm sorry, Pat. Keep going. You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who are by perseverance in doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. Wow. Let me just turn to Romans. Read it. What version do you have, Pat? Um, the new revised American. Oh, you do. Read verse, just verse 8. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, 
wrath and indignation. There we go. Yeah. Well, it is the same as mine. I missed yeah. it for some reason. Yeah. So there, that phrase, wrath and indignation, that is orge and thumas. Now, again, this is applied to God, and so we know it's a perfect anger. It's a perfect wrath. It's not unleashed uh, willy-nilly. It's unleashed on people who genuinely deserve it. Now, when it's applied in Colossians 3.8, the problem is you and I are unrighteous people. We're unholy people, right? And when we unleash our anger and wrath, oftentimes it's not well thought out. Oftentimes it's spur of the moment. Oftentimes it leads to disaster. And that's why we have to put them all aside. In fact, let me just talk about sometimes we see that righteous anger in the Scriptures is not sinful but acting to usurp God's place for vengeance is. So sometimes, friends, in the Scriptures, we'll see people who demonstrate righteous anger. Okay? So the point is, anger isn't always sinful, but when we try to usurp God's role for vengeance and His role for retaliation on our behalf, really what it leads to is sinfulness and especially the idea that we don't trust Him, that He will one day make right those who have done wrong. Are you with me? He will punish the evildoers. And so, in a sense, it's a lack of trust. So we see passages, for instance, in Ephesians 4.26, where Paul writes, he says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. The idea of not letting the sun go down on your anger has to do with the idea that, yes, it's one thing to be righteously angry, but it's another thing to never be able to let it go and to allow that to turn into bitterness. And the reason why you would allow it to turn into bitterness is because you don't really believe, at the end of the day, that God is going to judge the wicked on your behalf. And so in a real sense, friends, it's, it's neglecting or it's a lack of belief in the fact that God will one day judge those who have done wickedly. Okay, And, and that's why we don't let it go. We say, you know what, I've got to get back at that person. And it just it wears on us and wears on us. And yeah, Bob. That desire that we tend to have for everything to get rectified in the here and now, yeah. it spills over into a lot of bad thinking. Mm-hmm. And I think an example we've seen lately of that was this Pat Robertson's claim that God was angry at Haiti and he sent the earthquake because there were sinners and everybody anywhere else. Right. Okay. Well... He cannot know that. He's not a prophet. Yeah, he, unless he's an infallible prophet, you cannot discern who's the most wicked based right. on where earthquakes happen. That's right. Okay? Earthquakes are not distributed according to human merit. Right. <laughs> All yeah, right? that's right. But, oh. but sometimes Christians yeah. well being said. disgusted with how much wickedness there is in the world like to read into things. Oh, look, at God's going to fix it all in the here and now by... Yep. You know, sending a tornado there or a hurricane there or an earthquake yeah. somewhere else. And then we assume that the wicked people got what they had coming. That's right. But it's not like that because yeah. the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Yeah, that's And right. natural phenomena hits the just and the unjust. There were, that's right. there were Christian pastors in Haiti whose churches fell down around them. Yeah. They were gospel preachers. There were, I, I've got reports from people that there were solid Baptist Christians that were killed. Yeah. In the in the earthquake, and so you cannot try to read God's anger right. into natural phenomena. That's right. The tornado hits the church and it misses the penitentiary. You know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, exactly. Yeah. yeah you we, don't. You, you can't. You can't know that. Right. Because it, in order to know that, you have to have an infallible prophet 
who speaks for God. That's exactly right. And we don't have modern-day apostles because none of us have been with Christ from the beginning. None of us have done the miraculous. None of us have been called for that. And so you and I, therefore, cannot claim to be an apostle, and therefore Pat Robertson is out of luck, so to speak. Well, he, yeah, he's, a false, he's a false prophet. That's he has right. been for many, many years. Yep. And what people need to do is quit sending him money so he won't be on TV. <laughs> Amen. That's well said. Yeah, that's very. That would be very helpful, actually. Yeah, <laughs> should have put that in the application. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'm going to give you another verse here that talks about this very thing. Uh, Paul says the same thing in Romans 12:19. He says, "Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God." What I want to do now is I want to talk about the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, because it's not that we see a different principle. But there is some distinction between what God allowed in the Old Covenant and what he allowed in the New Covenant as far as people demonstrating their own anger and, uh, and using it to represent his anger. Let me show you an example from Numbers 25. Now, remember, in Numbers 25, the context is, is that the people are at an area called Shittim. And I don't, it sounds like, you know, it doesn't sound like a nice word, but that's the word. They're in the plains of Moab, and they're on the east side of the Jordan. And the people are about ready to go into the promised land. And if you remember in chapter 24 of the book of Numbers, remember Balaam? He could not curse the Israelites, but he instructed the Midianites and the Moabites to put false gods and in, in foreign women in front of the Israelites. And he knew that they would entice the Israelites to put a curse upon themselves because they would go after these foreign women and therefore they're gods. Are you with me? That's where we pick it up here in Numbers 25. And you're going to see a man sin egregiously against the Lord. And then you're going to see the righteous anger of Phineas. And I want to talk about it a little bit because I'm going to relate this in the Old Covenant to what, what we see in the New Covenant. So here's Numbers 25, 6 through 9. Moses records this. He says, Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his brothers a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. You see, I have that bolded there. That is extremely significant, that this man is taking a Midianite woman who is, in effect, an idolatress. She is going after the false god Baal, and Baal is the male counterpart. There's also a female counterpart in this god, uh, false god worship, and what they believed was that Baal controlled the fertility of the land. So if you had the male false god in the female false god come together they would give you fertility and what people for the land and what people believed is that they would act that out prior and after they would have their icons do, um, acted out if, if you know what i'm saying so this is extremely graphic it was extremely deplorable to god and who had leviticus 10 3 Larry had that. Now listen to this. These are the words that the Lord spoke in Leviticus saying that he had to be regarded as holy in front of the congregation of Israel. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will show myself holy in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Yeah, and that's talking back about Nadab and Abihu. But the whole point is, is in front of the people, I will be regarded as holy. So what happens here is this, this Israelite 
sins, not just in private, but in front of the whole congregation and Moses, who's the mediator of the Old Covenant, God's direct spokesman. I mean, it doesn't get any more egregious than that. And it's at the tent of meeting, by the way. So with that, let me continue on. Moses continues, says, When Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went in after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through. Now, let me just stop there. Interesting, I did, I, you see where I have dot, dot, dot? There's another sentence that actually I couldn't fit it all on here, but it talks about the man being thrust through, and then the woman is thrust through together. Okay, so they're, they're on top of each other is the idea. But it's interesting, there's a play on words in the Hebrew because the word talked about for thrusting through the woman, it comes through her stomach. And then the next word is, it's also through, the, it's inside the tent. And the word for tent sounds identical to her stomach because it literally means women's quarters. Okay, so the whole point is, if you could see the Hebrew, there's this play on words that it was thrust through her quarters in the women's quarters in the tent. And the reason why there's this play on words is it intensifies or it humiliates them. Do you understand? So there's this play on words. It's almost as if God, in his, in, you know, in being inspired by the Holy Spirit, Moses is writing this in such a way that it's actually humiliating to those who, it's kind of like nanny, nanny, boo-boo. You know what I mean? I, I don't know how to say it any other way. Um, it's just, it, you know, um, so anyway, I, I wish I would have had another slide for it, but it, it's a humiliation type of structure that we see in the Hebrew. So anyway, with that, it goes on. It says, So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, son of Eliezer, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel, in that he was jealous with whose jealousy? With my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Now here's what I want to talk about. When we come to the new covenant... Can we ever say, well, gosh, so-and-so is sinning in the sight of the congregation. I'm thrusting them through. That's it. They've had it. Or I'm grabbing, you know, are, are you with me? Well, the, the point is, I think that God honors our righteous anger. The only difference is in the, new, or in the old covenant, recall these people were a nation. And according to Leviticus 10.3, God would not tolerate his name being dishonored in that, in that congregation of a nation. Now when we're under the new covenant, what's interesting, friends, you and I are not given the ability to thrust somebody through and act out on our anger, even if it's on behalf of God. But in actuality, it's actually worse for people. Why? Because they're storing up wrath. You see, the next time God's wrath comes, it's his wrath against them, and it's in hell. And so, in a sense, it seems like they're getting off scot-free, if you will, because they don't have Phineas's thrusting them through. But in reality, the unregenerate and unrepentant people that are blaspheming God today, it's actually worse for them because the next time they feel the effects of God, it's going to be him unleashing his wrath against them. And in fact, we see examples of God unleashing his wrath in the new covenant. Um, do you remember um, in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? They lie to the apostles. Now, why is it a bad thing to lie to the apostles? Because they're representatives of God. Okay? They're his spokespeople. And so by lying to the apostles, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. That's why Peter says you didn't lie to men, but to the Holy Spirit, or you lied to God. Okay? They are his direct representatives. Also, in Acts chapter 12, do you remember Herod blasphemes? And what happens to Herod? 
Yeah, <laughs> I like that. In fact, um, uh, we have, uh, who had the Acts 12, 20 through 23? Let's just read that passage. Listen to what God does. Now, remember, God is doing this, not a human being. This is where Herod is boasting, or the people are boasting of Herod, that he is a God, not just a man. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Wow. Uh, (laughs) Friends, that's amazing. Now, realize, though, who's doing the striking down? Well, God is. Okay? So God is doing it. So the point being is this, friends. We know that we're to leave room for God's vengeance. I think God considers it a beautiful thing when you are furious for his namesake. Are you with me? However, we are never to act on it because we know that this person is in fact storing themselves up wrath unto the day of wrath. All right? So our goal and our mission is in fact to preach repentance, to preach the gospel. That's our goal. Okay? And that's our mission. We are to not act like Phineas. So there's a distinction. The old covenant, we had a nation, and it was a nation that had a covenant relationship with God. In the new covenant, there are many nations. There's not just one. And there's many people. And our role is to present the conditions of the new covenant. And if people blaspheme God, we can trust him that on the last day he will, in fact, handle it. And it will be beyond any of our imaginations. So I know sometimes I've seen people blaspheme God, and it bothers me. And it's a good thing, and it's a godly thing, that you're concerned about the reputation of his name. And I think that God honors that. What he won't honor is if you go into vigilanteism. You see what I'm saying? We, you and I can't thrust someone through like Phineas did. Another point to that is, remember, the government was Israel to those people. In other words, there was one government. Now you and I have to allow our governing authorities According to Romans 13, they're the ones who actually do not bear the sword in vain. Okay, But in Israel, what's interesting is nobody else was taking this guy out. So Phineas, he's a descendant of Aaron. He's in the priesthood. He, in a, in a sense, is acting on behalf of the government of Israel. So that's another aspect that we have to consider in this whole discussion. Um, but, yeah, the point being is it's, it's a good thing and a righteous thing that you're concerned for the name of your God. But what we do with that is we allow, we, we preach the gospel, we debate, we contend earnestly for the faith once we're all handed down to the saints. But when it comes to physical violence, no, that's the state's role and that's God's role at the end of time. Yeah, and Bob's got a thought. There's a guy on trial right now who shot an abortion Oh, provider. yeah, that's a great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the guy that shot the uh, abortion provider in church. Yeah, again, he took matters into his own. What did he not understand? He didn't understand Romans 13. So what's interesting is here you and I would be blasted by people in our culture saying, well, look, your side has people that murder as well in the name of their religion. What's interesting is it violates the scriptures, whereas when Muslims do it, it's actually in accordance with what the Quran teaches. Are you with me? So in other words, if you and I believe the book, we wouldn't do such a thing. When the Muslims believe their book, they do do such things. Are you with me? There's a huge difference. So, yeah, there's a perfect, that's a good example, actually. 
in our own culture. So with that, just think about that, though, the distinction between the Old and the New Covenant and um, when we can act on our anger and when we can't. Okay, so now he continues and he talks about malice and slander. And this term malice, it comes from kakyan, it means hateful, and it has to do with the intent to do harm. Now, what's interesting about this term is it has to do with the intent to do harm to another person. This is the type of thought process where you are stewing and you are angry with somebody and you want to do them ill, okay, ill will. So this is the thought idea where you're hating your brother or your sister, okay? And this should be put aside. Now, slander is actually when you end up acting on it, and it comes from the term blasphemion. And blasphemion, of course, we've all seen that referencing to blasphemy of God. But in this specific case, it has to do with blaspheming or slandering another person's reputation. So the definition that I got from my lexicon was to speak or act in order to harm someone's reputation and I want to read a passage out of Titus, and then I'll talk a little bit more about it. Who had Titus 3, 1 through 2? Did I give that passage? Oh, yeah. There you go. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. Yeah, to slander no one. The same term is used there. And the reason why it's so egregious to God is in a real sense when we slander someone made in the image of God, Jesus actually considers that a form of murder. Remember in Matthew chapter 5, I'll show you that passage in a minute. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is showing where the, the, the direction of the law is actually pointing. In other words, if somebody says, you know, I've never actually murdered someone physically, they can't claim that they're off the hook with the sixth commandment. That's Jesus' point in Matthew chapter 5 because more than likely they've engaged in this type of thought and this type of speech. Again, it's a wicked thing to slander someone who's made in the image of God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. He says, You have heard that the ancients were told... Now here comes the sixth commandment from uh, Exodus twenty thirteen: You shall not commit murder. Okay, now let's stop right there. Jesus isn't correcting the law... He's correcting the misunderstanding of the law. You have heard it, but the point being is you have heard it incorrectly. You have understood it, not in its fullest sense. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And he goes on, he says, And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be be guilty before the court. And whoever says, You fool, and by the way, you fool there is more. It actually is where we get moron. Okay, and I think about that, boy, I've, uh, yeah, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I, she'll be guilty of hell. And I'll tell you what, friends, you know, when you read the, the account on uh, the Sermon on the Mount here, what you should come away with is this idea, I can't do that. And I think that's Christ's point. In other words, you, what, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, you look at what's required of those who are in the kingdom and you realize, I, I can't do that. I need the imputed righteousness of Christ. And that's why in Matthew 5, 17, he says, I did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to get rid of it, but he came to fill to the full the requirement of the law. He filled to the full the requirement of the law on our behalf. Okay, That's the blessed news, that he, his righteousness can be imputed to us. So yes, I am guilty of that very thing, and therefore I'm guilty of murder according to God. See, but why? Because I've slandered the reputation of men and women who are made in the image of God. But in our day-to-day walk, doesn't that tell you how we should uphold one another's reputation and also other people's? Now, 
let's talk a little bit about balance there. That doesn't mean that we don't contend earnestly for the faith. Do you recall in the book of Galatians, Paul even had to call out Peter because Peter was engaged in Judaizing. So here we have one apostle calling out another apostle. When there's public heresy, it has to be addressed publicly. Are you with me? Okay, then I think we have to mention names. In fact, we have precedent for it in the scriptures. However, the the sort of merit here, the sort of underlying idea of being zealous for someone's name, in other words, trying not to slander them, is where you can possibly cover them over and keep them from shame. In other words, you may know something of someone, and had it been made public, it brings a disrepute upon their reputation. This is the time where you and I as believers in Christ say, you know what? I'm going to be zealous for that person's name and I will cover them over because this is a person who's made in the image of God. However, if it comes to a public teaching that takes people away from the Scriptures, the truth of the Scriptures and the Gospel, that has to be met publicly and names have to be mentioned. Are you with me? I think that that's what we see in the Scriptures. Okay? Let me move on then. And I want to talk about this next section then, the abuse of speech. The abuse of speech actually has to do not so much with name-calling other people. It actually has more to do with a filthy mouth, though I think it can be implied because slander was just mentioned. It would also have to do um, with maybe using fall language against a man or against a woman. Are you with me? And it should not even be mentioned among the saints, as we're going to see in Ephesians 5. But let me show you a passage in James 3, verses 8 through 9. Listen to what James says. He says, But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Now I want to talk about the tongue, and I'm going to go on a brief bunny trail, so, so stay with me, because I want to explain why this passage I think has to be understood. When I was in seminary, I took an advanced hermeneutics course, and what they mean by advanced hermeneutics is that you're really not going to study the Bible. You're going to talk about people who deny the Bible. <laughs> That's what advanced means. Okay. Well, in, in advanced hermeneutics, I had to take a course. And what's interesting is they're all postmodern in the class, right? And what they're trying to do is, because they don't believe that you can know truth, they're going to try to give you the keys to understand how you can know what the Bible's actually saying. Now, follow me through on this. They purported a theory called speech acts. And the speech acts theory, I know Bob has heard of that term. The idea is it's not that you understand what's being said, but you first understand or have to know what the author is trying to do through language. Are you with me? So, in other words, you can't really know what the words are saying. What you, the key to hermeneutics, according to these people, is this. You have to know what the author is trying to do with his language. And they cited this passage in James. And earlier, remember earlier in James in this section, the tongue can set a whole forest afire. It's like a rudder on a great ship and it can move the ship. And so what these men were doing in this hermeneutics class, these postmoderns, is they were ascribing being to words. They were, it was, they were, the words actually ended up having um, ontological being. In other words, they actually existed and they could do things. Are you with me? Okay, so get a load of this. The key to them to understand what the scriptures were saying was you had to know what the words were doing. But my critique, I raised my hand in class, I said, well, how do you know what the words are doing unless you know what they first mean? Because the words don't have force. They can't, you can't touch a word. They can't actually light something on fire. They first mean something. And because they mean something, they can hurt because people take that in. They understand what the word means. And they say, well, that's hateful. You called me 
a moron or whatever the case may be. Are you with me? But see, the word doesn't have being so that it can actually do things apart from it first meaning something. Now what are we back to? We're back to square one. We still have to know what the text means. Are you with me? So anyway, my whole point is, is when you see people like, for instance, the Word of Faith movement, they'll say you can speak things into being. They'll often cite passages in James that talks about the power of the tongue. And they'll say, look, words can do something. Therefore, I'm going to keep speaking that I get a Cadillac, and one day there's going to be a Cadillac in my stall. Are you with me? Well, friends, that's a misunderstanding of the way the tongue works. The tongue doesn't work because it has ontological being, in other words, words, but rather it works because the words mean something. And because they mean something, you and I understand them and we act accordingly or act upon them. That's, that's how it works. I just wanted to clarify that. And sorry to bring you into my confused world of advanced hermeneutics, but I thought that was warranted. Okay. <laughs> now let me show you another passage out of Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, where Paul writes, he says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, and there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, the idea which are not fitting among the saints. Now, I'm not going to mention this man's name, but there was a prominent emergent pastor who came out of the movement, and I was very excited because I heard him teach correct theology. He rebuked the emerging church. He showed them that they were wrong in the gospel. The problem now is he is preaching, which is good, but he uses foul language constantly from the pulpit. And I think some of you know who I'm referring to, but the the point is, is this. Friends, according to Ephesians 5, coarse jesting, bad language, it shouldn't even be mentioned among the saints. I'll tell you where this can be used practically. There's a man that I'm witnessing constantly. This is going to be a 10-year project, I'm convinced of, at the workout club that I'm in, and I'm witnessing to him all the time, and he keeps claiming that he's a believer, yet he uses the most foul language. And I cited this Ephesians 5 passage and saying, you know, this is... Now, again, we're not saved because we use good language, and we're not saved because we don't use bad language, but when we use coarse jesting, silly talk, uh, bad language, it's evidence of an unregenerate heart. Okay, so it doesn't save or not save, but it's an evidence, an indicator that we're not regenerate. And I kept pointing that out to him. And I said, why isn't your church teaching you these things? You, you talk like a sailor, a drunken sailor. I'm sorry, I shouldn't even say that because I, God bless the U.S. Navy. But you, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> um, I hate to even pew the, the sailors with that, with what he was saying. But he talks like we would probably in the locker room. You know, we've all, we've all been there. So at any rate, that's a bad indication that this man is unregenerate. Friends, bad language should not even be mentioned among the saints. Okay. Now we see, we come to the section now where it talks about putting on the new man. In verses 9 through 10, Paul writes this. He says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Um, notice the phrase, lie to one another. Obviously, that's talking about lying to fellow saints. But the idea that God hates a liar, we see elsewhere in the scriptures. In fact, every liar, according to Revelation 21.8, will have their place in the lake of fire. God hates lying. This is specifically related to you and I as lying to one another as the saints, but it also applies to lying in general. Are you with me? However, here's what I'm going to throw a little question out there. And I'm just using this because sometimes in the scriptures it's interesting. You'll see people doing godly things, but it comes in the act of lying. 
Okay, and I want to play with that a little bit because I want to have us wrestle with why that is the case and how is it that they're not, in fact, sinning. So let me put the question up, and it's this. Is it ever mortal to lie? Um, yeah, and I think that is the good default position. But let me just throw out an example here, and we're going to wrestle with this, and I'm going to show you, I think, the principle that we see in the Scriptures. Hopefully. <laughs> okay, let me just throw out this passage. In Exodus chapter 1, Remember, Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives that they have to kill all the first, or not all the firstborn, but all of the male children, right? Well, the Hebrew midwives, they fear God. In fact, they're Hebrews themselves, and they fear God, and so they don't act upon that. In in verse 19 through 20 of Exodus 1, we see their response to Pharaoh. He asks them basically, why haven't you killed them? Why haven't you followed my orders? This is their response. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes. And then listen to God's response. That, and by the way, friends, let's just stop there. That's a blatant lie. I mean, Hebrew women don't pump out kids any easier than any other woman, okay? <laughs> you could probably ask one if you know one. So they're just, they're, just, they're just lying, okay? But listen to what's stated right after that. It says, So God was good to the midwives, Okay? Now, let me just explain what I think. I'm going to give you a proposal on biblical ethics. And you, you feel free to push back. But this is the principle that I see in passages like this. And it, it's this principle. In some cases in the scriptures, telling the truth would be synonymous with being aligned with the lie. The lie. Okay? And I'm going to explain what I mean by that. Let me give you an example. Remember in Joshua chapter 2, we have the two spies and Rahab is hiding them. And they're on her roof, and the king of Jericho comes and says, Hey, where are the spies? We know that you have them. She says, Oh, I didn't know who they were, and they left. And, and she's, you know, if you, catch, if you leave now, they went outside the city gate, you may be able to catch up to them, right? She's just lying through her false teeth, right? Okay, so, but here's an example. Just let's just say she had told the truth. She said, Well, yes, king of Jericho, as a matter of fact, the two spies you're looking for are on my roof. Okay, and I put my pretend Rahab because I don't want anybody to think that's actual scripture. But just think if she had done that. Friends, if she had done that, what she would be demonstrating is this. It would be a lack of faith. Why? Because God had clearly stated that that land was the Israelites. That land belonged to, in a sense, Yahweh and his people. And what's more is these people in that land, the land of Jericho, were guilty of gross immorality. In fact, they slaughtered their own children to false gods like Molech. Okay, And so God was judging these people for their sins. This woman believed that, and therefore because she believed that, yes, Yahweh is the God of gods. There's none like him. He is the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel. I trust in him, and I know this land is going to him, and there's nothing that's going to stop it. Because she believed that, she knew that she had to align herself with the Israelites, and so she protected their military forces, if you will. And by the way, the reason why I have highlighted spies on there isn't because, again, this is Scripture, but because think about the very act of spying. The very act of Israel sending out spies, the very definition of spy is deceit, is it not? Um, Because people are in the Lord's army, should they not use camouflage? Are you with me? That's deceit, in in a sense. Am Am I right? Okay, so here's my point. Had she told the truth, it would have been evidence that she really believed the lie. That no, Yahweh isn't any different than any of these false gods. And this land doesn't belong to the Israelites any more than it belongs to us. But she said, no, 
I'm hiding, I'm going to risk my life hiding these spies, and I'm going to lie to this, this king of Jericho because I know when Yahweh comes, he's finished. And so he was, yeah, Larry. So she was actually demonstrating faith when she had told this, mis, this mistruth, yeah. Okay, a while back I borrowed you a book called Alleged uh, Biblical Discrepancies. Yeah. John Haley mentions this very instance in that book. Yeah. And uh, he has it under the understanding that that act that Rahab did was countenanced. I'm still struggling with trying to figure out how to understand. And I remember Bob talks about graded absolutism. Yeah, that's it. Let me me hand it to Bob so you can fill him in on that. Yeah. Oh, this is good. Yeah. Okay. That's in Haley's book. Okay. Yeah, uh, the idea of graded absolutism I got from uh, Norman Geisler. When yeah. I, and I studied ethics when I was in seminary, yeah. and we read all these essays. And, I, and the one I thought was the best in the entire book was Geisler. Okay, and his point was, and, and this may be where you're going with this, yeah. but in the case, of the book of Hebrews says that what Rahab did was faith. That's right. And God commends what she did. And so there are such things as ethical dilemmas. In yeah. other words, you have these commands in Scripture, and, and occasionally you get into a situation where obeying one command puts you in disobedience to another. Yeah, well, that would be the command not to lie right. and the command to bless Israel. That's right. So she chose to bless Israel yeah. but lie. That's right. And so in, in the ethical um, system called graded absolutism, you affirm that all God's commands are absolute truth, yeah. but that within the whole Scripture you're given... given the ability to see what's the greater good. Exactly. Okay, yeah. so then when Jesus, for example, is talking in Matthew 23, it says you tithe the dill, the cumin, yeah. you know, little seeds, yep. but you neglect justice. Right. Okay, it isn't that the Old Testament command of tithe was not valid. Right. It's that justice is graded, in other words, the weightiness of justice is greater than the weightiness of tithing those little seeds. That's right. And so there's such a thing as the greater good. Yeah. And so in such a case, as what you're pointing out, then Rahab's act is righteous because she knew that protecting Israel was a greater good than That's telling right. the truth. That's right. Amen. And this, and this system is not teaching relativism, That's right. but it's teaching the greater good. That's right. Okay. So, for example, if you were in Nazi Germany and, the, and you were hiding Jews yeah. like some people did, and the Nazi soldiers come and say, do you have any Jews in your house so we can take them out and kill them, it would be an act of righteousness to lie to those soldiers. Yeah. Because saving life is a greater good yeah. than speaking the truth in that kind of a circumstance. Yeah, and Bob, I like that. In fact, that's what I borrow from, too, is Geisler, the greater good argument. In fact, he thinks that's superior to the lesser evil. He just likes the way it's Yeah, yeah if you're Lutheran, yeah. you, because Luther was real conscious of sinning all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, John Warwick Montgomery has an essay in the same book that I have called The Lesser Evil. Yeah. So that you're actually committing a sin, but it's better to commit the lesser sin than the bigger sin. Right, right. And that's that's exactly right. And that's what one thing I'm trying to avoid here is realize I don't think Rahab was, this isn't regarded as sin whatsoever by God. Are you with me? Okay, and that's why what Bob is pointing out, the phrase, the greater good argument, is actually the better paradigm that Geisler lays out. Because it's not that Rahab is taking, she's sinning somewhat, 
No, God looks at this as a righteous act, and I'll show you evidence of that. But let me play off of this some more, because I want to look up the term, the lie, and I want you to see how it's used a couple times. I'm going to give you a quote from F.F. Bruce. Uh, Who had Romans 125? I hope I gave that passage out. Oh, good. Yeah, thanks so much. Listen to how the lie is used, and you're going to see it has to do with believing or disbelieving who God really is and worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And so the lie has to do with idolatry where you really don't believe who God is. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Yeah. So let's just stop there then. Had Rahab said, yeah, you know what? The spies are up on the roof. What she would have been demonstrating is that she really doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. She doesn't really believe the promises that he's given out. Are you with me? I think that that plays into here. Let me just give you another example. 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Who had that passage? Did I give that one out? Oh, good. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Yeah, so that, and then, of course, that has to do with even believing in Antichrist and his, in everything that is opposed to the things of God there. So the lie has to do, friends, at the end of the day, with idolatry. And F.F. Bruce says it this way, and I really like this. He says, by the lie is apparently meant the denial of the fundamental truth that God is God. Friends, when we deny who the God of the Bible is, we're engaged in the lie. And had Rahab or the Hebrew midwives told the truth, they would have been denying the God of the Bible who actually loves the innocent, the God of the Bible who gave the seed promise and said, no, Israel, through Israel the Messiah will come. Okay, Had the Hebrew midwives told the truth, they would have been denying who that God is. And that's the issue. And they would have therefore not have been partaking in the greater good. Is, that, is this all clear? Does this make sense? Let's read James 2.25 because it's another allusion to Rahab's righteousness just like we see in the book of Hebrews. James 2.25. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Yeah, so the point that James is making is that, remember, he's the one who says faith without works is dead. Can that faith save? So what James is not saying is he's not saying that we're justified by works, but rather if we really believe what we say we believe, we'll end up acting on it. That's the exact point that he's making. She really believed who Yahweh was, and therefore she lied to King Jericho because she knew the whole thing was finished. Are you with me? And that's why in the book of James, James cites Genesis 22, and what Abraham does, okay, remember he's going to sacrifice his son Isaac? He cites that as an example of faith because he acted on the belief that he had in Genesis 15. So what's interesting is in Romans chapter 4, Paul borrows from Genesis 15. Abraham's justified by faith. Remember Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God was credited him as righteousness. But James showing that yes, yes, faith, you're saved by that, but it's a faith that leads to works. He cites from Genesis 22 showing that Abraham acted on the faith because he was even willing to sacrifice his own son, knowing that God would even raise him from the dead if necessary. Okay. But here's the caution that I want to put out there, and it's this: we don't lie or sin in any way ever to help God. Okay, the default position is always telling the truth. And it's only in these rare instances where we're caught in the dilemma where doing the greater good incorporates lying that it's tolerable. Are, are you with me? Okay, so for instance, in Romans, who, did I give Romans 3, 5 through 8? Yeah, maybe read that passage. I just want you to hear. Now, this doesn't have necessarily to do with lying, but it has to do with sinning that grace may abound. It's that kind of idea. 
And, of course, it's, um, that's not a good position to hold. Yeah. Romans 3, 5 through 8. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as some we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, their condemnation is just. Yeah, so the idea, let us do evil that good may come, that, friends, is never tolerable within the body of believers. Um, the idea that we can do wickedness, hey, if I lie, God will cover it over. I, I just want you to be clear that I'm not saying that if we lie, God stamps his stamp of approval on it. No, the default position of the believer is to represent the truth. However, in some circumstances in the scriptures, we see that the saints had to represent their greater good. And if, in fact, they told the truth, they would have been aiding and abetting the lie, and they would have been aligned with the lie, okay? All right, now let me continue on here. We're still in verse 9 through 10. I want to talk about this true knowledge. But before I do, notice how um, we look at these tenses again. It says, you laid aside the old self. And by the way, that's in the era. So we've done that in the past. And of course, if we put all our theology together, God is the one who enabled us to do that. We put our old self off, aorist, and have put on the new self because we're clothed with Christ, heiress, that happened in the past, and now we are being renewed. Okay, And we're being renewed. That's in the present. And who is renewing us? Well, God is. And so he's constantly working at us. That is the process of sanctification whereby the Holy Spirit interacts with the means of grace enabling us to be conformed to the image of Christ. And notice that it is to a true knowledge, epigenosine, True knowledge, the way this term is used throughout the scriptures, it has to do with precise knowledge of things ethical and divine. The point, this is why I think it's an important word to look at, is this has to do with cognitive knowledge. It's not mystical. It doesn't come through the emotions. This has to do with truly understanding who God is and what he requires of us. Okay? And so this is extremely important because that is he's renewing us to this true knowledge. How are we being renewed? Well, it's to knowledge. And so do you see how egregious it is when the seminaries are saying, you can't even know anything? Well, then you can't be renewed. You can't be renewed if you take out the mechanism by which we're being renewed or we're being renewed unto. Are you with me? Okay, so that's why this emerging church heresy is so particularly egregious. So it's to true knowledge and it's according, which is one of my favorite prepositions, akata, akata, it's according to, which is a preposition of standard. We are being renewed unto a true knowledge, but it's to God's standard. In other words, it's not just any old knowledge, it's God's knowledge. That's the level that we find it. Okay, it's at that level. <laughs> okay. It's God's. It's not just knowing things about snowmobiles or knowing... It, this is God's knowledge, okay? And that's, that's very exciting, friends. We're going to be knowing Him. And how does it happen? By sitting under the means of grace, by learning the Word of God. That's why you're in Bible studies. That's why you're going to hear Bob preach. That's why you're engaged in reading the Word of God. Why? Because God has given you the ability to love His Word. He's given you the ability to understand it. And He is constantly working on you as you engage in hearing and reading the Word to renew you daily in an ongoing process. And it's very exciting. So God is restoring... Think about it this way. He's restoring our image that was once marred 
by the fall. Remember Genesis 1.27? He made male and female in his image. Avam, man, is male and female. He made us in his image. But at the fall, that image is somewhat marred, is it not? But look, read, um, who had Romans 8.29? Oh, yeah, back there. Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Yeah, we'd be conformed to the image of his son. That's the renewal process of sanctification. That's what we're heading toward. And there finally God is preparing or making a people who will in fact represent his image truly. That's the idea that you see. Okay, now let me move on. And I just, I just want to finish this section so we can go on to the next one. We see there's no ethnicity in Christ. And I just want to point out a few things in this passage. Colossians 3.11, realize I have words italicized. That means they're not there in the real uh, in the Greek text. He says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Realize, friends, we have contrast here. And he's saying the contrast is between the Greek and the Jew. If you're not Jewish, you're a Greek. Okay, then it's between circumcised and uncircumcised. But what about barbarian and Scythian? What's the contrast there? Well, I did a whole paper on the Scythians because if you recall the Scythians, they were people who lived around 600 B.C. up in the Caspian Sea area, and they were barbarians themselves. Okay, now the reason why it's important to note the Scythians is because many liberal scholars in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah talks about the enemy of the north in Jeremiah 1. Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 10, there's this threat of the enemy of the north. Liberal scholars try to claim that it was the Scythians that they were concerned about, that is Jeremiah. And when the Scythians failed to come, then Jeremiah just renamed the threat the Babylonians. Are you with me? Well, I wrote a paper, and I don't know if I can even find it anymore because it's on an old broken computer, but I proved through using Herodotus' own writings that that's not the case. The Scythians were never deemed the threat by Israel. In fact, it was always the Babylonians. So, of course, the word of God is always correct, and it was concerned about the Babylonians. But the whole point is this. The barbarians and the Scythians, that's not a contrast. They're both viewed as being barbarians. Okay. Now, let me just show you something out of... Um, oh, here, barbarian, Scythian, synonymous for barbarian, and it's contrasted with the Greeks because, remember, this is written to Gentile readers. But in Romans 1.14, very interesting, listen to the way Paul uses this phrase. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. The point being is this. If you're not a Greek, you're considered a barbarian. So in this passage, barbarian and Scythian, they're both linked together and they're both considered barbarians. And it's just contrasted with the Greeks who are considered the people who are cultured. That's how it ends. So with that, I'll just quit, but I want to just point out that we are one people now under Christ, and that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead. I was thinking about that yesterday. I'm getting motivated to start writing my third book about the church. Yeah. And what I've been meditating on, what you're just talking about here, Yeah. the biggest damage that's been done to the church since the 1950s is bringing sociology into the church as yes. a mechanism for defining the church. That's right. Okay, so what happened was they brought in sociology yeah. and started looking at target audiences, tailoring the message, whether to, to young people like the emergent yeah. or the baby boomers or uh, the, whatever you're trying to do. Yeah. And so they brought sociology in and used it to define the church in its, in its message, in its uh, activities, yeah. and so on and so forth. 
And the book that I intend to write, I'm going to uh, claim that the church is defined by God yeah. and that God specifically does not allow us to make those sort of categories. That's right. And the passage yeah. you were just citing proves that. Yeah. We can't target our message to the barbarians because we don't care about the Greeks. Right. We can't target the Greeks because we don't care about the Jews and what have you. The target is sinners. That's right. Okay? Yeah. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter your ethnicity. It doesn't matter anything. God adds people to the church Amen. through regeneration. That's right. We don't attract them to the church by using the modern science of sociology to analyze them. Amen. And I think that's one of the biggest failures. And if you look at the books in the Christian bookstores about church, yeah. they're all about sociology. Yep, that's the right. The purpose-driven church. There's a new one called Deep Church. There's the Merged Church. There's this kind of church. They're all about sociology. It's, and it's self-made religion. That's yeah, all it is. Exactly. We don't we just forget sociology ever existed yeah. as far as the church is concerned. And when God saves somebody, he adds them to the church. And if they happen to be a barbarian, then that's who he added to the church. Amen. That's right. Well said. Yeah. Say, I'm sorry I went so long today. What I'm going to do is when we lead off next time, I'll get into the application of this section. I was going to talk a little bit about ourselves personally, but then also culturally and give you a little ammunition maybe you can give to people who are going off to college. I think there's some real powerful things we should think about, and they really alluded to by Bob here. So let's talk more about it next time. And um, I'm sorry, again, I went so long. I'll try to control that better next time, all right? Okay.